Diane Kelly is the director of the School of Information Sciences at UT and is an internationally known information sciences scholar. She is rather new to Knoxville, as I'm sure she's found out. She's been here a year, which in Knoxville time is not very long at all, but she has already made an impact on our town. She comes to us from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she was a professor in the School of Information and Library Science. Her research and teaching interests focus on interactive information search and retrieval, information search behavior, and research methods. Welcome, Diane. Thank you, Nelda. Good morning. I'm Diane Kelly, and I'm really excited to be here, and I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to talk with you all um, and be part of this symposium. As Nelda said, I'm a professor and director in the School of Information Sciences at the University of Tennessee. And among many things that we do, we do train people who are going to be librarians. Um, And so we have a very strong program. We're, in fact, number one in the SEC for library and information science. I was taught to say that in the SEC. (laughs) In truth, I grew up in North Alabama, just over the border, and I did attend the University of Alabama as an undergrad, but I love it here. It's been great. And I've been here, I moved here August 1st last year, so it really has been almost a year. And it's been a great place to live in a great community. And part of that is because of this library, the library in Blunt County, uh, as well as libraries um, all across the state that have really provide a great place for people to be able to go and learn more about lots of things. So what I'm going to talk to you today about is, as you see this great title, how we interact with the Internet and how it interacts with us. I'm primarily going to be focusing on search engines because that's what I know a lot about, and that's also one of the primary ways that we actually access information on the, on the web. The web is a part of the Internet, which is a larger system. So I thought I would start with this picture, and this is from a a 1911 issue of Scientific American, and I apologize if you're having trouble looking at it, but this was as good as I could get it. Um, What I'm going to just tell you about is what uh, you see in this picture. So this is actually the New York Public Library at the time. It had been redesigned. Um, in such an impressive way that it made the cover of Scientific American. Uh, What you see are several floors of book stacks and what appears to be mostly men in suits, I don't know why, interacting with these books. Um, These are not patrons, these are actually librarians and people fetching books. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit from the article so you can get a sense of how you might access information in this library. So these are going to be quotes. Although the new library is not devoid of mechanical apparatuses for the quick handling and delivery of volumes, the necessity of supplying books for all classes of readers rendered it advisable to devise an architectural plan and an executive system which would distribute the reader rather than the volumes which he reads. After having filled out his order blank, The reader hands it to one of the reference librarians at the information desk, an enclosure which stands in the center of the room and to which all order blanks must be referred. This is at the top. 
the reference librarian takes the, takes the order slip, gives it a number, gives the reader a check bearing the same number, and finally instructs the reader to go to the north or south side of the delivery desk in the main reading room. The order slip is then shot through a pneumatic tube to the main reading room. The reader waits in front of an indicator. When his check number is flashed on the indicator, his books are ready for him. So interesting interaction. It might seem sort of burdensome or limiting to you, um, or you may feel uncomfortable that you actually, in this library system, could not get the book. You couldn't look at the book. You couldn't look at what was next to the book. But you rather had a request and waited for somebody to bring something to you. Now, what I want to talk to you today about is that this system today doesn't look much different from that. So we have a mechanism, an information access mechanism, which is a search engine. Typically looks like what you see on the screen. I'm using Google in some of my examples, but there's others, Yahoo being, um, are some examples. You type in a couple of words, and then you get some results, usually in the form of 10 blue links. You're often told there are millions of things out there that match your query, but for some reason, you only view a few. So this, I suggest, isn't that different than what we just saw in the New York Public Library in terms of separating the person who's seeking the information from the information objects themselves and not allowing the person to really see what's in there. Facilitates a similar kind of interaction. So what I want to do in this talk, I have prepared a lot of examples and want to sort of examine four questions with you today. The first one is just to think about how search engines decide which of these billions of information objects, those could be videos, images, uh, web pages, all sorts of things that are out there, how do, they, how do they decide which things to present to us? And can we really see all of them? And part of why I want to tell you this is so that you can understand things like the filter bubble that you've heard a lot about, understand people's concerns about what we're being shown and what we're not being shown. I also want us to think about how does the assortment of the information objects presented to us potentially impact our perceptions of reality and even of ourselves. To what extent is the assortment of information objects presented to us representative of all such information objects out there. And then finally, thinking about uh, how the presentation of information influence or exploit our own search behaviors. And many times, even our own biases that we exhibit as we search that we're unaware of. And these aren't necessarily the kind of bias that you may be familiar with, like selecting things that already interest you. But there's a lot of interesting regularities that researchers have documented in how people interact on the web. And it's things like where you're most likely to click, regardless of what information is presented to you. There's a whole bunch of stuff that we do that we're totally unaware of that actually are exhibiting patterns that researchers and people that work at search engine companies gather data about and then use. The first thing I wanted to tell you is I'm going to use the word query, and that's just to refer to the keywords that you might enter into a search engine if you were searching. So that's sort of a technical term and a simpler term to say. So what you see here is a query for fake news and a set of search results. We have about 159 million results. Wow! 
people have been doing a lot of writing. It's a lot of stuff. And in 0.56 of a second, they've been returned. Now, how many people have ever tried to get to the bottom of the search results list? Have you, did you make it? Did you make it to that one, 159 millionth result? Well, we're going to try today. I think I have about 45 minutes left. So let's see how far we get. So I started clicking. And I clicked and I clicked. And you can see I progressed to page 20 here. I'm over the zero. I've got this nice feedback on Google that sort of suggests to me that I'm somewhere midway through because that O is in red, right? You maybe not didn't think about that design and what that design might suggest to you. So I'm going to click on next. I'm at page 20. So there's about 200 results that have been displayed. Now what's going to happen? Nothing. There's nothing left. I found everything that's relevant to my query. There's apparently about 200 documents and information objects on the web that are relevant to fake news. That sounds unusual, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Uh, but this is what will happen, and this will, this will happen with almost any query that you issue. There may be that many pages that they have indexed and that they know about, but you can't get to them. So what are those pages? Where are they? Would they change our opinions about any topic? You can imagine, not just fake news. We can't get to them. How else would we get to them? We have a search engine. That's what mediates most of our access to this information that's online. So I get a completely different set of results the next day that I issued the query. Every day, we could get a completely different set of results for the exact same query. So that makes it really hard for us to know, have we looked at everything? Get some sense of what's new or what's not. And I should tell you that when I looked at these results, and I didn't, I looked at, I didn't look at all 200 of the ones previously, but I looked at a lot of them. Most of them were from news sources, and nothing to pick on the news industry, but surely there's more stuff out there than articles written by news sources about fake news. But that was what was mostly in that um, top set of results. And that illustrates what's called source bias. And so the source of a particular document is something called a feature that's used to determine if it's going to be shown to you or not. Also, most all of those articles were current. They had been written yesterday or today, or even it would tell me six hours ago. And so time is also something that's used to determine what you see and what you don't see. And so for a query like fake news, somebody's decided that whoever's asking wants to see mostly things from the newspaper and mostly things that are contemporary, as in today. So when I did this again, uh, day two, suddenly there were a lot fewer results out there. Two, two million, it dropped, interestingly. Only 100, 157 million this time. And then I scrolled on and tried my story again. This is showing you what's at the bottom of the top ten, so we actually see some changes uh, in order of two, two results that seem pretty innocuous, but somehow from day one to day two, they've changed in relevance. And then I started my experiment again. This time, I got all the way to page 32, not 20, before I got that same message. And so I decided, well, let me rerun the search. Let me do, let me do the comprehensive one. I want to see all 157 million of those results. So I redid the search, and suddenly, within seconds, there, the number of things available changed. The more comprehensive search returned fewer things. 
And this time I was actually able to make it to page 77 before I had found everything relevant to fake news. And again, we may think, well, gosh, Diane, I would never go to page 77, but what if you wanted to? And why can't you see all those other things that are out there? How do you get to those things? How does what you see here influence what you think is available and what you think is the state of the art about a particular topic or issue? So I want to step back and talk a little bit about how a search engine works. You kind of need to understand this, and hopefully one thing you'll come away with is a little bit better understanding of how they work so that you can kind of think about what it is you're being shown and understand that it's really not 100% value-free. These are algorithms. These are mathematical expressions that some human, and that's important to remember, that some human created with all the baggage every human brings to anything they create, that some human created that captures their idea of what is relevant to a document given a particular query. It's a model of somebody's idea. It is a formula that is used to do retrieval. And these are actually some examples. They're much more complicated than these. And I would encourage you to take uh, my class, except I'm not teaching information retrieval here, but when I used to teach information retrieval at UNC, we did unpack many of these formulas. And it's a great way just to think about how to represent, represent information. So what kind of evidence can we actually use to predict if a document is relevant to a query? So let's take this example. We have a user, for fun, a dog, who has a need, <laughs> bathing a cat, okay? And here's a document that's been retrieved that talks about how to bathe a cat. Now, let's take a, just a second to think about why this particular document would be returned. So I'll let you look at it and kind of get some ideas about why you think this, this is something that would be returned. So there's some obvious things. So you may have thought, well, the query is bathing a cat. The document has these terms. They show up a lot. And so it's relevant. Both of the terms are there, not just one of them. They both show up close to one another. They uh, both are in the title. The title's kind of important. It's more important maybe than the regular text. The terms are in the URL of the document. Somebody purposely named it that, so they've decided that this is what this document is about. There's other kinds of information as well that's used, and so the terms that occur in other documents that point to that document, in particular in the hyperlinks. So when you come across a hyperlink, it often has text, and that text you may come across in another document about Angora cats says how to bathe the cat, and it hyperlinks to this document. That's a piece of information that's used. It's kind of like an endorsement. Um, number of other documents that actually hyperlink to the page. Has pictures, has steps. So this is something's figured out for, for things that are about how to, often have step one, step two, step three. Um, and a regularity of language. So all of these things are called features, and these are all different features that are used to determine what things to show you. And I mentioned in our fake news example, source, source is a feature. Time is also a feature. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff that's going into deciding when something is relevant or not, when, they, when something should be shown to you and where it should be shown. There's also all sorts of features that are gathered from behavior, from what you do as you search. Uh, and this is recorded in what's called a search log. And so a search log is something that records the queries that you type, 
what time you type them in, the documents that you select. Often recorded as well as how long you spend or display a document. And this can be information that comes from multiple devices and also across multiple applications. If you use something like Google Chrome, for example, then Google likes that because they can watch you doing stuff in all sorts of places, not just with a search engine or on the web. They gather all that information about you and then use that to determine what to show you. That's why if I type in fake news and Alan types in fake news, we might actually get something different just because of our past search behaviors and what the system thinks we want to see. These search logs are also used to do things like determine the, the rank of a document based on popularity. So if you have a person who comes in and enters a query a cat bath, and that person clicks on the document that's ranked third, and then the second person clicks on that same one, and then the fourth, third person that types that same query clicks on that same result and so forth, eventually what happens is that result gets boosted up in the, the search results list. And why that's a little dangerous is because people exhibit a primacy bias, which is we click the first thing. So the more things that are in front of us at the top, the more likely and higher the probability is that thing's going to get more clicks. The more clicks it gets, the more likely it is to stay at the top. So things that are never shown in the top set of search results have a very, very low probability of ever getting clicked on and therefore have a very low probability of ever being shown to anybody at a place where they're actually going to see it. Maybe it's number 300. But that's part of how the system works. So it gets feedback from you that it then uses, and you and many other people, that it then uses to decide where something should be shown. And then you could think about the rich getting richer in that sense because something is going to have a higher chance of being clicked on if it's up there. The other little piece that's going on is machine learning. And I thought, wow, should I tell them about machine learning? And I thought, sure. Those formulas I showed you before, it's a, a computer system that a human is training in order to learn what those functions are, what those formulas are. So that's what machine learning is. It sounds really cool, but in reality, it's, it's just creating a formula that knows how to classify objects. So what do I mean by that? Let me show you an example. What you might do in steps in machine learning is first define a target or label that you want to predict. And so here I've picked cat. So I want to be able to predict, given some picture that somebody shows me, if it's a cat. And maybe I want to predict if it's a dog or an elephant or a tiger or a horse or whatever. But for now, I just want to focus on training a model that's going to know how to make a prediction given a picture that this is a cat with a high degree of probability. And this works a lot in image retrieval. So the second thing I might do is then define a set of features, again, I'm using this word again, features that distinguish what is a cat, what belongs in the cat class, has whiskers, has two ears. Now, I know you're thinking about your one-eared cat, but most cats have two ears. <laughs> has four legs, right? So there's a whole bunch of regular properties of these objects. And so I tell the machine this. I give the machine a whole bunch of examples so the machine can learn. This is called training data. So maybe I collect thousands of images of cats and I say, machine, these are all cats. You go for it. You figure out what ha all, what's the properties that all these photos have in common. And that's what a cat is. The machine doesn't know it's a cat. The machine knows has whiskers, has two legs, has four feet. Now, of course, there's always examples that don't fit the mold. And in fact, 
examples of misclassification because that one would probably be more likely to be classified as a burrito based on what it looks. So machines don't know everything. And then after that, you train the model. And again, the, that's the model. Those formulas I showed you is an example of a model. And so now when you have new pictures coming in, you can say, that's a cat. It has all these properties. Now, there are certain classes, and I love this example. I've got this from a website uh, which was trying to, to class Hello Kitty, which, you know, is Hello Kitty really a kitty? Stands on two feet. Or a girl? Well, that is the other option. And so what you see underneath Hello Kitty are a bunch of properties that the machine thinks are, can be used to describe uh, Hello Kitty. And I like this. Has a bow, wears clothes, is less than five apples tall, has whiskers. So is Hello Kitty a girl, as I heard somebody over here say, because she has many properties in common or features in common with a girl, or is she a cat? And so what you can see here is just a decision that the machine would make by comparing the different properties or features that each of these classes of objects have, girls and cats, and then making a decision about where Hello Kitty belongs based on probability, really. And what you might notice about these pictures is leading us to our next question, and you may have noticed this about the, the cat training data as well, that there was a bias in that cat training data. Did any cat lover notice what it was? I'll show you in just a second. What you might notice about these examples, though, you may say, well, gosh, Diane, they look like anime from Japan. That doesn't look like any girl I know, right? And so what's really dangerous about this is that the classification is only as good as the data that's used to do the training. And now you may notice that almost all my cats are what kind of cat? Domestic. What? what? And tabbies. Tabbies. Mostly all tabbies. I'm, I'm biased towards tabbies, so I pick mostly tabbies. I picked a few to, to throw in for differences, but mostly tabbies. Where are the calicos? Where are the orange kitties? Where's the Siamese? And so part of the danger in all of these models that are controlling, again, what we're seeing is that there are lots of biases that are introduced based on the type of training data that's given. And the training data often come from data that's easily available. They often come from data from people from different specific countries or cultures. So there's all sorts of biases we may not even realize that are baked in. If we sampled cats in some other part of the world, there may be different type of cat, more hairless cats, maybe a greater uh, majority than cats with fur. And, and so if those were the pictures that were used to train the classifier, the machine would come up with a, ver with a very different idea. And then what it showed us may or may not match what our expectations are. What it shows us then changes maybe our expectations about how frequently hairless cats show up in the world or how much they don't. And so this representation is kind of important. And I want to start and show you some examples of why this is important. Um, the first one is, uh, is uh, something that people, a lot of people are concerned with in research, which is detecting fake names. And so this particular project that I'm going to tell you about is something that some people at LinkedIn did because they wanted to try to filter out uh, accounts that they thought were associated with fake people. They were associated with some real person but not a, a real person in reality. And so they gathered in order to create a classifier that would classify and given a name, is it fake or real, they gathered a whole bunch of data, a whole bunch of names, examples of real names, and then fed all those into the system. Now, I don't know if any of you have traveled the world. I bet a number of you have. And you may have observed that 
names differ a lot from country to country. And one of the features that was used to distinguish whether something was real or fake in this study was actually the length of the name, where long names are often have a higher probability of being labeled as fake. Now, again, if you've traveled to different countries, you know that some countries people have very, very long names. And so anybody from those countries, their names have a higher probability of being labeled as fake, not because they are fake, but because that was what the machine thought and that was the information that was given to the machine. And again, this is being used to prevent people from having LinkedIn accounts or flagging their accounts as fake when in fact they may be real. The other example I want to show you, this is, has to do with classifying pictures as well. And this is an example from this, I know this person really well and I came across this and I thought this is great. This is a, perfect uh, to illustrate her personality. She worked at Google for probably about 20 years. She was one of the first employees there. And now she has her, her own startup. Uh, and so what she was really interested in doing is looking at how people were being classified, how their sex was being classified, given a picture, is this a male or female? And so she gave her classifier that she had written some examples. And these are all different pictures of her. And then you can see the different probabilities that the machine associated with that being a girl or boy in the picture. The first one here, 1.1% chance that that's a girl, according to the machine. 12.3, 55.2, and 87.6. Now, what feature seems to really matter? Hair. hair. Yes, hair kind of a simplified way of thinking about uh, how we would construct and classify somebody as male or female, and certainly even more complicated if we think about labeling people uh, according to gender identity or some other type of characteristic. And again, you may say, well, gosh, Diane, why are you telling us? This, this is the data that you see when you search for images. This is how Google knows or any other search engine knows how to show you pictures that match your query. So she did this really funny experiment where she took a picture of herself with the same background and she varied several features like has glasses, doesn't have glasses, has wig, you know, doesn't have wig, smiled, frowned. So she had some little experiment where she systematically did, took a whole bunch of pictures and then she looked at her classifier and you all, as I knew, were very smart. Uh, you picked out the biggest the feature that biases it the most, which is whether somebody has long hair or not. And I have to tell you, her story, the reason I thought her story was funny is that she started off talking about how another day had passed and somebody had referred to her as sir. And she thought, gosh, why do, you know, so, and then they looked up and were surprised. And I thought, that's great. I identify with that. I've been called sir so many times in my life. Now, I know you've had some time to sit here and stare at me uh, and probably are like, really? But I have. In fact, a year ago, uh, somebody didn't look up. They glanced. They looked at my hair, I'm guessing, and they said, here, sir. And then they looked up and, of course, were really embarrassed. But it's really quite amazing, again, how humans make these kind of mistakes and these quick judgments, much less machines. And it doesn't really have anything to do with whether somebody calls me sir or not because I don't care. But it has to do with the machines capturing and supposedly representing reality, what we think. And it may not match what we think. It may not be a good way of representing the world. Another great example I wanted to show you has to do with geography. 
you are where you live is what I'm calling this one. So search engines use where you live to decide what to show you. And you can try to turn this feature off. It's really hard to turn it off. Um, And it's really fun if you travel internationally to see what search results you would get in a different country. And some of you, it looks like, have had that experience. But it can be dangerous because think about who's in your community. I bet you like a lot of those people. You probably have different ideas from a lot of people in your community as well. And that's actually something I like about my community is my community has people with very different ideas about things, and it's great. But this was a study done by Yahoo, and they did an analysis of their search log. So remember the log I showed you before with the queries and the clicks and the time? They took all that, and they pruned it in different ways, which is the representation flag, but they pruned it in different ways, and then they cross-referenced it because when you interact with a search engine, it knows where you're from at a geographic level, zip code usually level. So they went around and and then got census data for those zip codes and then imputated all of those properties of that track from the census, what the census was saying in terms of race, education, income, et cetera. So anybody who was issuing a query from that zip code suddenly had all those properties uh, that the census described. And maybe you say, well, that's, that's fine. That's the average And so this is actually describing their users. Now, there's a famous joke in the search engine world that the users of Yahoo, and not to offend anybody in here, hopefully, that the users of Yahoo are less educated and earn less money than the users of Google. And I see somebody nodding their head, so I'm not making it up. It's true. And so what you see here, actually, are for their billions of records that they analyzed, you see birth year, the average is 1968. You see gender, 49 is indicating that it's about mixed, but not quite. Per capita income, percentage below poverty, mean travel time to work, household size, percent black, white, Asian, Hispanic. And then they had, this was a time of a a very past election now, where they were looking to see what, assuming who, who voted for Obama and who were voting for McCain, again, based on not the person telling them, but aggregating data that's available in other ways. Then they use all this, and so you may say, well, Diane, that's great, that's fine. So then what they do is they say, well, here's people who live in these zip codes. Here's the kinds of things they're interested in. Okay, so here's where it starts to get, let's personalize things to you based on where you are. But if you live in North Plate, Nebraska, the topics that you're interested in, so you can see some of them, actors, that H-M-E-D-I is medicine, radio, gambling, which look down there, who is 1.09? Ah, Las Vegas. No surprise. So if you look in, and live in North Plate, then the, the column where you see the highest number uh, is travel. Maybe you want to leave. You can also see high numbers with agriculture and things like that. Now, it's kind of interesting, but if you live in those areas and you're not interested in those topics, but your search results are getting served up to you as if you are, can make things really difficult. And they went as far as to make the demographic segmentation, and this, again, also happens. So in this crowd, they decided, well, here's a bunch of people who like the same thing. We're going to call them baby boomers, and so they gave them the label, baby boomers, and then they describe the kinds of things baby boomers like. 
Then they say, oh, here's adult content seekers. This is another big cluster of people, and this is a big cluster of people uh, that use the web uh, that show up in this. And here's the kinds of things they like. Here's, here's how we'll describe them. Here's liberal females. And again, here's where it starts to get like really strangely specific, but not sure why. Uh, but here's the kind of things that describe a liberal female. White conservatives who are mostly male, they often search for automotive-related topics, <laughs> business pages, and compared to average, relative, uh, to average relatively often from, for home and garden information. White conservatives. And then the challenged youth, uh, which is a, a category... Another, again, interesting one, and, again, and it's not just th these clusters of people that they think exist that are then they're using to decide what to show you. What I get, find disturbing, too, are just the labels, because the labels, they're humans that are making the labels. Who cares if they have PhDs in computer science and engineering and are making probably tons of money? They still are making labels that are coming from culture, coming from their beliefs about the world, right? So there's always a human at the end of the rope. So the other big question I wanted us to address is about how these objects have an impact on our perceptions of reality and of ourselves. So and I'm going to show you several examples, and I, have to, I just want to give a warning. <laughs> I've already talked with Nelda and Mary Palm about this and Alan, um, but there, there's a few things that I, I don't know you, and I don't, I don't want to offend you, and so I just want to let you know, but these are t terms that anybody can type in, and these are things that describe many people's realities. So if you do see something that offends you, I apologize. Um, so query suggestions. So this is actually called auto-completion. And so how this works, also math. It not, has nothing to do with Google being able to be like, oh, I know what they're going to type. does know what we're going to type. What we would call here, this is a prefix, M-E-O-W, we would call that a prefix. And so Google can predict whenever it sees that prefix, what's the probability of the next letter being W? What's the probability of the next letter being H? So thank goodness the probability of it being W is a little higher than H. Uh, but you can see this, and what's fun is you can do things like start typing T, like a very common starter for word to see what's most common target uh is is it is it is uh but again it's giving you ideas you're searching and oh i didn't think about that oh that's oh that's what that's what i wanted to search for oh that's what i wanted to look for and you're probably using this information you may not know it you're processing it and, and then using that to form ideas about the probability and likelihood of something but again remember all that's based on training data that may or may not be representative of your interest or of the world even. So I thought I would look for professors to see what do people say about professors? <laughs> Not good. <laughs> Not good. And I have several colleagues in here from journalism, electronic media, and from information sciences, and I'm sorry, but this is the world. And that's a funny example, but what about an example like this? Could be. What about an example like this? The, the word here is transgenders are, and then you have a, an assortment of choices, freaks, sick, stupid, annoying. 
Here is why do BLA, a very generic prefix, BLA, very generic prefix. First ch choice, again, according to Google, highest probability of being typed after observing who, why do BLA? Could be anything, right? So people see this, and it reinforces their ideas a lot of times, whether positive or negative, about something being normal or not normal, okay or not okay. Let's try another one. This one's pretty small, so I'm going to start looking for some groups of people. So first I'm going to look at this query, black girls, to see what's, what's retrieved. Some young person could be doing a search. So what we see first are a bunch of results, um, and apparently there was a study that was created uh, that happened recently because you're going to see it show up about ten times. Same study mentioned again. There's a couple of movie items in here, and then this is the bottom of the search results page on the first page. So again, is that it? It's not very inspiring, is it? Page two, I click next, which very rarely happens, but I click next for you. What's at the bottom? That's not even the bottom. That's not even, the t that's not even at the t rank 20. If you can't see it, it says black girls are easy, and then there's a description that elaborates that. What about pictures, images? Remember all those cats and other people? Here's what you see. Just have a look. Maybe you're making ideas about what's the nature of these pictures. I couldn't help myself, so I clicked shopping. And you can see here where it kind of goes off because everything's black. That's a feature. And then most things are apparel. So girls like apparel, I guess, when they search. It's what they want to see in shopping. Now, what about white girls? What are you going to see there? Well, you see apparently a movie, not white chicks. You see that one there, too. Uh, white girls and a book that's come out. Continue down the search results list. You see an interesting one at the third rank on this page, which is actually one, two, three, fourth document. It says black girls are perceived as less innocent than white girls. So the same result we saw before with black girls. This is the bottom of the page. Nothing interesting here. Just still kind of uninspiring stuff. I go to the next page. I'm at page two. And then at the bottom there, and again, that's not even the bottom because we're not to 20 yet. We see 10 reasons black guys prefer white girls. Okay. Young people look at these things all the time. These are not unusual queries. What, is, what do these results say? What kind of message do these results give to people? So I clicked images here, and you can see these images are kind of a little less, a little different. They have a different feel to them, I would argue. And then, of course, you're a girl, you're going to get stuff, and maybe rosé this time as well. <laughs> But shoes, lots of shoes. Now, what about another word, heterosexual? What do you see here? You kind of look at the pictures, take them in. Do you think they're positive, negative, neutral, salacious, not? 
And then homosexual. Oops, sorry. And there is a little, I did put a little cover. This is, the, this is the top of the search results. I didn't do it. I didn't make this. This is what you're seeing based on training data. I think the tone of these are a very little bit different, right? They don't focus on, pe- there's a few where people are happy. So I want to talk about another study that was really interesting. This has to do with ads. This person that's up here is actually the first black woman to get a Ph.D. in computer science from MIT. That was in 2001. Latanya Sweeney. And she's done really amazing work. And so I'm going to tell you about a study she did that looked at advertisements. So Google also runs all the major ad agency on the web, right? They control pretty much all the ads you see. You may not know that, but they do. They're not free arbitrators of information. They want to make money. They make money by people clicking on ads. You click on an ad because they figure out what you want to see. But they also show ads for words. And what she wanted to look at to see was if online ads were more suggestive of arrest records, uh, do they appear more often for black-sounding names than white-sounding names? And so the search results here, this is just an example. And what you see along the side are paid advertisements. So I wanted to give you an idea of what we're talking about here if you haven't used this or kind of like, oh, I'm not sure what she's talking about along the right-hand side. And a lot of times when you type in people's names, you get um, advertisements for things like public records, these kind of things. And it's very common. You know why? Because employers, I bet many of you are employers, and I bet many of you have said, oh, I'm going to check this person out and see do they have an arrest record or see something else about them. So it's a common tool that people use to make decisions about hiring. So if you're searching for somebody and you see, oh, suddenly a bunch of ads that say arrest records, you know, whoa, Roe. And in her article, she actually looks and thinks about this as discrimination, a type of discrimination that would be acknowledged by the federal government that would meet those guidelines. So she did a study, and she had to went through, and these are the different ads. Most of them just say, you know, Joe Smith on eBay, we found Joe Smith, but then these are the ones you want to pay attention to, the ones that have the words arrest in them that suggest that somebody has done something to get themselves arrested. And so she went out and constructed in a very rigorous way list of what would be considered black and white names, having more probability of being associated with people in those two different categories. And what she found was she did a search just for her name, and this is sort of how she started. She got these ads. Now, this is her, this person I just told you about who's, you know, amazingly accomplished person who is a professor. She's actually at Harvard and so here are the ads that pop up, including one that says Latanya Sweeney, arrested, and then public records, right? And then this is actually, you can't see this, but what she did then got, did, went to see if the person, these people with these names had been arrested. So maybe it says arrested, and that was true. They had been arrested. So maybe there's no problem. So for all these names that she looked at, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, she also went to see, well, maybe the ad is there because... The person has been arrested, but this is showing no arrest record. She then did this for a name like Jill Foley. Jill got all these great ads for her name, including Macy's Wedding, Dr. Jill Foley there at the bottom. Information found, nothing about arrest, but aha, somebody named Jill Foley had been arrested at least a few times. 
So the source that you would presume that would be consulted to decide about this shows that, that maybe it, that should have been shown arrested there. So I did a few more searches using some of her names just to see today because this study was a few years old. Um, and so I used Ter- Terrell Collier, which would be classified as more of a, black, a higher probability of being associated with a black person. So here's what we see. Uh, we do see 911 arrest. And then here are the pictures, first, row of pi- first two rows of pictures. I didn't scroll to f- 200. This is what you see. Greg Collier. Oh, Greg. Greg looks happy. So this is a lot. I know. I know. But I want to talk about the last little point, how the presentation of information actually influences us in ways we don't even know. The first thing I want to tell you about, this is a study that came out, and this is a great paper. You can get this online. It's open. And it's called the Search Engine Manipulation Effect, and it has a much longer name, and it was published in what's called PANAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It's a pretty reputable site. And what they wanted to see is if it was possible to impact the outcome of elections. Now, they're a little more sinister than I am with their search engine manipulation effect because I think a lot of times... You know, Google just wants to make money, and so it's just turning stuff out, you know, at you, not necessarily that it's trying to sway your voting, but that's a provocative question to consider. What they did is they did several studies, actually did like five studies with thousands of people, so these results are based on solid study design, all the great properties of a study you would want. And A, B, C, D, and E represent different things a person saw, and this was a real election, and they did it in several countries as well. But this is an example. And so in one election, there was somebody called Gilliard and then versus Abbott. What you see in A, that's showing you the first set of search results, page one, are all about there were pro-Gilliard. And then the second page was sort of this more neutral zone. And then you didn't get to the pro-Abbott until the, what is that, page five. So you had to go a long way to see that. And then the order B is basically flipped. And so people were randomly assigned to see these different versions, A, B, A through E. And so then they wanted to see afterwards how this might influence per, how a person voted. So the basic question is, is a person who's undecided, if they get order A, do they have a higher probability of voting for Gilliard? Versus if they get order B, they have a higher probability of voting for Abbott. So how does how the information is presented to you and the order that it's presented to you, how does that influence how you vote? They found that the biased search rankings did shift the voting preferences of undecided voters by about 20% or more. And furthermore, that people from certain demographics were more susceptible to this shift, to this biased information, shifting their votes. They also showed that the search ranking bias, that they called it, can be masked so that people show no awareness of the manipulation, which doesn't surprise me. I've done tons of studies and discovered the same thing. Now, what I'm going to show you next are a few other biases that have been observed, and I've observed them in my own work, and these things have been documented for years, so this isn't new. But in this paper, they replicate the results, and then I, I like their figures, so I just use them here. 
one thing that we know is that people barely go beyond the first few search results. What you see here is just a search results page, and if I just numbered the results one through 10, you don't see 10 on there, but I got six. The red line is a click, and then the blue line is the time people spend. So basically, the take-home message here is people spend most of their time at the documents that are at the first few ranks. That's the take-home message. And then there's a big, gigantic drop-off. How many people in here, well, I shouldn't ask that. I'm not going to ask that anyway, because everybody's going to raise their hand. But other people, not anybody in this room, don't click, never go to the next page, barely even scroll to the bottom of the search results page. Scrolling is so much effort. Not going to do it. And what I'll show you in just a second, even things like screen size influences whether you scroll or not and how far you scroll. Mobile phones, oh, my gosh, nobody looks at three results. That's it. That's your chance. And it's okay. I do it too. You see average time people spend about 140 seconds on page one, and then there's a gigantic drop for page two, and that's because most people don't even go to page two. And, again, this isn't a finding that's new to this study. This is People have done this for years. We've seen it. We can also, in some of the own, my own work that I've done, we've also been able to manipulate for good because I'm a scientist and I'm studying things, not because I want to sell anybody anything, but we've also been able to manipulate people's search behavior by changing how many search results we actually show per page. So in this particular scenario, we had one condition where people saw three per page before they had to go next, and another one we had six per page, and another one we just had ten per page. And the idea is that if you only saw three per page, would you hit next more often? Because you, you have some idea in your mind you need to see about seven, right, or something like this. And so you're going to hit next. And what we found was what these graphs show you, the top one is for the people that got three per page. The middle one is the people that got six per page. And the last one, the people that got ten per page. And when you see that people got ten per page, what you see is more clicks across those ten at least in this study. Whereas the people on the top, where there were three per page, people pretty much just stayed on those three, and then they would issue another query. So whatever it is, clicking next page is, comes at a huge cost, psychological or physical. People want to avoid it. And this was on a regular page. And even this, now these are a little harder to see, but we even varied the size of the search box just by small amounts. And guess what we found? We could get people to type longer queries just by changing the search box, making it a little bit bigger. And it's systematic. We observe it with lots of people. So there's a reason your search box is small for Google. Google doesn't want you to put a lot of stuff in because it's optimized for little stuff. And so over time, that box has changed a lot. And how much so? These companies constantly are doing experiments on you. These are called A-B testing. This is one of my favorite examples. These are two different color palettes of blue, gray, and I think we've got green. Very subtle differences. Bing did this. They tested out hundreds of different variations of these colors that you may or may not even be able to detect sitting out here in the audience. And what they found is that one side, and I think it was the right side, all things equal, attracted statistically significant greater number of clicks just because of the color. It's crazy, but it's true. It happens all the time. 
And so if you want to show people advertisements, because that's how you make money, you want people to click more because you want to have more opportunities to show them advertisements. So you figure out the color combination that, again, you may not even realize is something that appeals to you or doesn't appeal to you. But looking over lots of people, it seems to matter. So in close, I want to just remind us of all the things we talked about this morning, a lot of different things, uh, including how search engines work, thinking about how the assortment of objects that are presented to us are representative of all the things out there, or even all the things in the world. The world is not necessarily on the web. The world of ideas and possibilities and thoughts are not all captured and represented. They're differentially captured and represented based on who's using the web, based on who has computers, based on who has infrastructure. And the world is a big place with lots of big ideas, some of which we never encounter because our tool doesn't allow us to, because it doesn't even know about them. We think about how the assortment of the objects potentially impact our perceptions of reality and even of ourselves. And then how the presentation influences or even exploits our own search behaviors. Our access to information has always been mediated. If you go to the stacks and you have to look up Dewey Decimal numbers, that's a classification system created by people from a particular culture with particular beliefs. It represents a certain thing. There's nothing universal about the Dewey Decimal system or even those universal numbers. Somebody created them, somebody with a specific ideas and conception about the world. And it may completely be misaligned with somebody else's perception of the world. It may be completely misaligned with the majority of the people that live in the world's way that they would classify information, right? But we got to it first, and now it's everywhere. And as a consequence, they can be powerful tools in reifying any kind of ideas that we have about the world, about the occurrence of things, frequency of things, likelihood of things. People mistake them for reality. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, we often reinforce stereotypes and injustices um, and exhibit biases which we are unaware when we are searching. And part of that, again, is this interaction. It's an interaction with the system. There's usually more data available about the majority than the minority. That's just the nature of it. The majority is, there's more than the minority. And so you can think about any of these systems, again, and the information you're seeing and the training data being potentially overly influenced and overly representative of certain ideas. The other important point is that the data sets that are used are often convenient ones. And one really interesting story is a Twitter. Look at the news, you would think everybody tweets. They don't. They don't. Um, people want you to believe everybody tweets. And there was a, a really interesting story about tweeting that happened after Hurricane Sandy. There were millions of tweets sent from New York, New York City. Millions of tweets, but most of them were sent from Manhattan. That's great. I'm sure they were impacted by the hurricane, but not, they weren't sent from people who the hurricane really hit. In part because the people that tweeted, there, there, was, there just weren't that many people that tweeted. Um, and, of course, they probably were busy doing other things. But you get an idea of what's going on when, uh, and we sort of think that that's everybody, but it's not. And the last point I want to make um, is that the web has, has always been just one big copy and paste job anyway. And so, so much of the material that you see has been copied and pasted from some other source. That's just the way the web developed. Um, and so a lot of the information that we have access to on the web isn't 
new or unique. A lot of times the new and unique and interesting things that you're going to find actually are not on the web at all, but in your library um, or in books or in other sorts of um, media. So I'll end here, and I'm happy to take your questions now or during the break or any other time of the day. So thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of Knox County Public Library. To hear other episodes, please visit our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G.